If you would please open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 123. As you're doing that, I want to extend a warm welcome from your brothers and sisters in Crestview, Florida. As Matt has, has already mentioned, they are familiar with this church, as familiar as they can be from however many thousand miles away that is. Matt has blessed us a couple of times by preaching for us. So when we finally, we've been trying to get this trip together for years, we're able to come over to visit Matt extended the opportunity for me to be able to share the word with you. I was more than happy to do it. So Matt mentioned, I'm on vacation, but I'm working. This is not work, brother. This is joy. This is joy. I'm glad to do it. Matt also mentioned our, our, our family, uh, our, our larger church family, our larger partnership. And I think from the very beginning, when we were at Pastors College together, we were able to experience that in a very unique way and that our class, it was a larger class than usual, but it was a truly global class as well. I mean, there was a number of us from the U.S. there. Matt, of course, was there from England. We had Marcus from Germany, Nilo from the Philippines, Oscar from Bolivia. I mean, we really we, we covered the globe there. And that's one of the things that I've always um, just appreciated about this family of churches is the regular updates we get about things that are taking place, and more and more so now, all over the globe. Uh, this truly is not just about a, a United States-based sort of family of churches. It is a global partnership of churches. And when I get those updates, I can't wait to share them with the church because I want them to, to know that they are a part of something that extends beyond Crestview, Florida. And so I just wanted to share one example for you guys so that you're aware, hey, we're truly a part of something that extends beyond Bristol. Um, in our state, in the state of Florida, we've recently had a, a gentleman by the name of Mario. He pronounces it differently than I do. Uh, Mario, who uh, is interested in planting a church interested in planting a church with our family of churches in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. Uh, Mario is uh, currently serving as a bivocational elder in a church that is Spanish-speaking. And this is what is so exciting for us, is um, it's, a, it's a doctrinally sound church. And Mario uh, describes that within the Spanish-speaking um, church culture, there's a, there's a certain void in doctrinally sound churches. And so because this church is, they draw from an immense geography, Spanish-speaking Christians who are looking for good theology. And so when I, when I looked up on their website and saw the geography that they were drawing from, I was like, oh my goodness. But over the course of time, the Lord has worked on Mario's heart, uh, his He's always been continuationist, but that continuationist conviction has grown in him, and he now senses a need to uh, plant a church with the strong theology they have now, but that also includes this continuationist conviction, but also is bilingual. And that was something that's really been unique for us. And, and Mario's purpose in this, he goes, there's a, there's a there's a thing that happens within the Spanish-speaking church. Um, the older generation wants to hear the preaching in its familiar language in Spanish, but their children are growing up speaking English. 
And so as soon as those children get old enough, they leave and go to English-speaking churches. And in the, the Hispanic culture, the family is very important. And so now you have families fracturing, churches fracturing. So he sees an opportunity to plant a church like-minded in all the ways that we are theologically, practically, but that will keep these families together and will keep these churches together. And we just love that. And so we're starting to partner with Mario to see if we can get him into Pastors College this August, start that process of evaluation, and to see what happens. But Tampa would be a very strategic place because Tampa is the cusp of what is then the rest of South Florida, which is many Spanish speakers, many people who could benefit from the, the, the Spanish language, the English language, the strong theology, the strong practice, and because of other people in our family of churches who have lots of influence in Central and South America, you see how this thing starts to all of a sudden just take on a life of its own. I share that because you're part of that. Your prayers for our family of churches, Matt's contributions at the pastor's college, preaching at our church, all the ways that we are united, you're part of that. So I hope that's a blessing to you, and I hope that you're encouraged to know, yeah, outside of Bristol, you're having an impact, and you're serving the gospel expansion uh, in Florida, in the U.S., in Central and South America, and all over the globe. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for all the ways that you contribute and participate in that. So you're a blessing. All right, well, let's dive in here. We're going to be looking at Psalm 123 today. Uh, when I sat down to start working on this sermon, I realized I have never preached internationally before. And so even though we all speak American, um, <laughs> no, we speak English, right? We're in England and we speak English. So I wanted to take a moment just to say thank you for exporting the English language to America because uh, I, I value the way you use the English language. I apologize for what we Americans have done to the English language. My family were fans of some uh, British television series, and of course your, uh, your period movies are popular amongst us. And we just one of the reasons is we value the writing. Your excellent use of the English language um, is something that we very much appreciate. So thank you for sharing that with us. But I was concerned they might not get my jokes. <laughs> they might not appreciate my figures of speech or understand my illustrations. So those, even though we speak the same language and we're so connected, so quickly became aware of, I'm, I'm going a long way and there are differences. And so... Having said all that, I hope you will understand or comprehend my opening illustration. It's about ketchup. I had to ask Matt beforehand. I said, Matt, do, is ketchup in plastic squeeze bottles in England? He said, yeah, it is. I said, okay, good. They'll understand. If you're a little bit older, you'll know that once upon a time, ketchup did not come in plastic squeeze bottles. It came in very inconvenient glass bottles. You had to shake them. You had to pan them. You had to really work these glass bottles just to get a drop of ketchup. 
And I see smiles on those who are, have a few more years on them, so you understand what I'm talking about. Well, in the U.S., a very popular brand of ketchup is Heinz. And in the 1970s, Heinz produced a series of television commercials claiming that Heinz's slowness in coming out of the bottle was actually proof that they were the best ketchup. Now, the jingle for these television commercials came from Carly Simon, her, her well-known song, Anticipation. So on the television screen, there's the upside-down bottle of ketchup, ketchup just, I mean, barely moving, if moving at all. And in the background, Carly Simon is singing, Anticipation, Anticipation, it's making me wait. And then the announcer would come on, and he would say, Heinz, a taste worth waiting for. We live in a world that doesn't like to wait, don't we? A decade later, Queen had the song that had the chorus, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. Enter the plastic squeeze bottle. The culture of now did not escape the marketing team at Heinz. They produced another commercial with the plastic squeeze bottle. So on the screen, you've got a plastic squeeze bottle, Carly Simon, and to sip. <laughs> Ketchup just comes firing out of the bottle. There's no waiting. There's no anticipation. Wouldn't it be nice if life's challenging circumstances resolved just like plastic squeeze bottles? Wouldn't it be nice if we were in control of when we get grace, when we get mercy, that there was no waiting, no anticipation making me wait. Wouldn't it be nice? Well, Psalm 123 teaches us that God's mercy often comes with anticipation and with waiting. It also teaches us that God's people are to keep their eyes on God and to keep their prayers coming to God until God's much-anticipated mercy arrives. Let's read Psalm 123 together, and then we'll pray. As it says here, this is a song of ascent. <laughs> to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned, in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who were at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Father God, I ask that you would bless the reading of your word this morning. I ask that by your spirit you would proclaim your word and the truth that we would be more aware of what you have accomplished through Christ and what your spirit is still at work 
doing in us each and every day. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We don't know who writes Psalm 123. We don't know when it's written. We do know that the Psalms 120 through 134 are known as the songs of ascents. Ascents as in going up, ascending. Scripture refers to a journey towards Jerusalem as going up to Jerusalem. And the Scripture refers to a journey out of Jerusalem as going down to one's destination. This is because Jerusalem sits on top of a high hill. In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus says the, the people of God are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The city of God, Jerusalem, is set high on a hill to be a light to the world, that the world might be drawn to its light and give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. Three times a year, Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem were to make a pilgrimage up to the city to celebrate festivals. As Jewish pilgrims would make their final approach to Jerusalem, they would ascend the hill. Tradition has it that during their ascents, these pilgrims would sing these psalms, the Psalms of Ascents. The Songs of Ascents offered encouragement to Jews thousands of years ago, and they continue to offer encouragement to Christians today. So let's take a closer look at Psalm 123 to find encouragement for ourselves for the pilgrimage that we are on that we call life. Our first point this morning is looking to God. And this is going to come right out of verses 1 and 2. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now the one who is enthroned in heaven isn't named here, but we know who it is. The author creates some anticipation and some suspense by not naming him actually until the end of verse 2. <clears throat> to you I lift up my eyes. Now, a number of psalms begin with or include this kind of language, specifically this kind of posture, with one's eyes lifted up to heaven or eyes lifted up to God. King David begins Psalm 25, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. And then in verse 15, David writes, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. David is in need of rescue in that psalm, and he, his eyes look to the Lord for rescue. In Psalm 141, verses 8 and 9, David again writes, My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me. This time, David is looking to God for refuge. 
And in Psalm 121, words that we're familiar with, it begins this way. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. When the people of God are in need of mercy, in need of rescue, in need of refuge, their eyes are commonly and appropriately lifted up to the Lord. I believe there's something for us to to glean from this specific posture, this posture of looking up, eyes aimed to the heavens. Now, we could also say, well, let's put it this way. When we prayed this morning, I would imagine most of us bowed our heads. Our eyes went down this way. So, this, this idea, this posture of our eyes aimed up, looking to God, I mean, it can almost be seen as presumptuous. Who are we in our humble estate to, to lift up our heads, to lift up our eyes to God? But Jesus tells us a parable in Luke 18. It says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts in himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So note the two different postures at play here. The tax collector seeks mercy, but he will not lift his eyes to heaven. In Psalm 123, the psalmist likewise is seeking after mercy, but with his eyes Lifted up to the one who is enthroned in heaven. Is the psalmist exalting himself? Is the, is the psalmist presumptuous? Clearly not. The postures of both the psalmist and the tax collector are portrayed for us in the scriptures as honoring God and appropriate to their context. The tax collector approaches God in prayer a penitent sinner seeking forgiveness. The psalmist approaches God in prayer, a defenseless child calling upon his father to defend him and to protect him, to give him refuge and to give him rescue. Both of them are seeking after God's mercy. How we approach God is important. These examples teach that our posture can reflect our heart. Proud hearts approach God proudly and arrogantly. In the parable, Jesus says that the proud will be humbled, and that's not a a good thing. But a humble heart approaches God in humility, and that humility can be reflected differently, eyes down, like the sinful but penitent tax collector in need of mercy for his sins, or eyes lifted up like the psalmist, seeking 
mercy from God who alone can defend him, protect him, rescue him. The first phrase of the psalm reflects the psalmist's humility. To you, I lift up my eyes. This psalm is first and foremost lifted up to the one who is enthroned in the heavens, God himself. Yahweh, as we learn at the end of verse 2. This cry begins with Yahweh in a place of honor at the very front of the first sentence, at the very beginning of the song. Yahweh is the one enthroned in the heavens. The Lord himself declares in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. The prophet writes in chapter 40, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And so the psalmist begins with purpose. The attitude of his heart reflected in his words. May our hearts be similarly postured as we mimic the, the psalmist's approach to God. To you we look. To you we lift up our eyes. The one who occupies heaven. The only one with the mercy that we need. In verse 2, the psalmist uses two human relationships as metaphors to compare his posture to God, to compare what his posture towards God is like. He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Four times here, the center of attention is the target of the eyes. Where one looks in times of need can be a, a telltale sign of where one ultimately finds hope. Servants, the same word can also mean slaves here, look to their master. A mistress looks to, or, I mean, I'm sorry, a maidservant looks to her mistress. And not just to their master, not just to their mistress, but to their hand, to the hand of their master, to the hand of their mistress. Slaves and servants, they don't have any power. They have nowhere to go for recourse. They're entirely defenseless and vulnerable except for their master. They have nowhere to turn except to their master or their mistress. So they look to the directing hand of their master for instruction and commands to know what it is that they're supposed to do. They look to the supplying hand of their master to receive provision and to receive sustenance. They look to the assisting hand of their master to receive favor and support. They look to the protecting hand of their master to be shielded and be defended, to be preserved. They even look to the correcting hand of their master 
for rebuke and reprimand and adjustment. More than any, the helpless and the weak look to the hand of the one who rules over them sovereignly. Servants and slaves desire to know the will of their master. And so much can be known by the mere movement of the master's hands. Come. Go. Here. Watch it. Get behind me. Be protected. The hands can say so much. So look at the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Their eyes are on their sovereign. Their eyes look up to their master. Mercy is what is needed above all else. So their eyes will remain on the Lord until God has mercy on them. Another way of saying that is they will look nowhere else until they receive the mercy that they need from the Lord. God's mercy can come to us from any direction. It can look like so many different ways than we can imagine. Those who are singing with the psalmist here recognize that the one true source of all mercy, regardless of where it comes from and what it looks like, is none other than the Lord. So their eyes will remain fixed on the Lord for as long as it takes, as it says here, until he has mercy on us. What kind of mercy are they looking to receive from the Lord? What kind of mercy are they seeking? That takes us into our second point. Verses 3 and 4. The second point is crying out to God. The final words of verse 2 are repeated twice again in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. The, the repetition here draws our attention to the psalmist's earnestness. And not just the psalmist, but all God's people. Notice how the author has transitioned from writing in the singular, my eyes look to you. He's now talking about, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. The author's burden is shared by all of Israel. Together the people of God raise their voice as one in prayer for mercy. What a case for corporate prayer. I want to encourage you to pray together. When you have the opportunity, whether it's on Sunday morning in your pre-service prayer, during the, your midweek meetings when you gather together in various groups, pray together. Know that there is power when God's people assemble together and pray. And know that it is a sweet, sweet privilege to be able to gather together and to lift up your concerns and your blessings to the Lord. You are not alone. 
you have all these people with you. We know that when the people of God cry out to the Lord together, that he hears them. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, Israel's been enslaved for 400 years. But then we read this at the end of the chapter. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. I'm going to interpret that as prayer. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. That's power in praying together. Here in verses 3 and 4 again, the people of God, they lift up their cry to the Lord for help. Like the cry in Exodus, this cry too is, it's not a cry for the mercy of forgiveness. It's not a cry for God to withhold his wrath from their transgressions, though that's always a good thing to do. This cry of mercy comes from the faithful who are looking for relief and rescue from the world. It's not God's displeasure of which they have grown weary. It's the world's displeasure of God's people that they have become weary of. Have mercy on us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So their their eyes are lifted up to the Lord, but their hearts have been ridiculed, despised by the proud. Those who are proud have been treating God's people with contempt. Those who are described as being at ease have been treating God's people scornfully, and God's people say, we have had more than enough. But just like servants or slaves or maidservants, God's people here are powerless. They've nowhere to turn in their distress except to their master. And he's the Lord. He is Yahweh who is enthroned in heaven. So even in their weakness, I think the people of God have got an advantage here. Those who fear the Lord as they should are treated with insolence by those who are at ease and proud. People described as at ease in Scripture are those who do not fear the Lord. They've grown comfortable. They've grown carefree. They've become self-confident. In all their affluence, they've become overly secure and complacent. They have no concern for their own condition before God, and they certainly have no concern for others. The proud, likewise, are the prosperous who've become puffed up, only relying on themselves rather than relying on God. So in short, those who love the Lord are calling out to the Lord for mercy because of the ill treatment they've been receiving from those who do not love the Lord. The psalm is thousands of years old, but isn't it still relevant today? John Calvin writes, the faithful 
who are oppressed by their enemies, pray that God will deliver them, for they have no other hope than in his protection. So with that in mind, let's move to our third point, our final point, to look for some truth that will be encouraging to us to do likewise. Psalm 123 teaches us that God's mercy often comes, as we've said, with anticipation and waiting, but it also comes as a very sure expectation. The psalmist is waiting, but he's not waiting as someone who has no hope. He's not waiting as someone who doesn't have a real expectation of receiving. The psalmist says, until... He doesn't say if, he says until the Lord has mercy upon us. So the timing of the mercy is unknown, but the eventuality, the reality of the mercy is never in doubt. We will look and we will pray until the mercy of the Lord gets here. It's coming. In his commentary on the Psalms, Written in the 1860s, William Plummer offers us seven practical considerations and encouragements from this psalm. I just want to to go through those for us. Number one, be encouraged by this. God is not limited in wisdom, power, or goodness. God is infinite in them all, and the God of all wisdom, all power, and all goodness does not scorn his children, but rather has pity on them. He writes this, He who permits our distresses to come upon us can take them away or sustain us under them or bring good out of them. There's four things right there in that one sentence to to think about. Number one, God is sovereign in all of our distresses. All of our distresses are submitted to God, and it's God who allows them to come upon us in his providence. That's encouraging. He has power over it. Number two, God can take away our distresses. He can rescue us. He has power over every circumstance. So there's always hope. That's encouraging. Number three, God sustains us under our distresses. God will not give us more than we can handle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 famously states, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will, always, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And number four, God brings good out of our distresses. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, God is at work in all of your difficulties, in all of your temptations, bringing good to bear. He is refining you because he has predestined to conform you to the image of his son. You will be glorified. And that is encouraging. The struggle is that 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 refining process, it's, it's often hard. It can be arduous, to say the least. God may allow us to be stripped of all worldly help that we may learn to rely on him and him alone for the mercy and the grace that we need. And that takes us to our second consideration from Mr. Plummer here. Number two, we are not our own masters, but we are servants of God. Our business is to please God, not ourselves, to serve God, not ourselves, and to do the will of God not our own, and to rely on God for protection, not man. We need discernment to know what it is that actually pleases God. We have to engage and ask the question, is what I'm doing, is what I'm feeling, is how I'm responding pleasing God? Is our response to the scorn and the contempt of the world pleasing God? Look to God with humble dependence, eyes aimed at him, praying until mercy is received. If that is our position, yes, God is pleased. That is encouraging. Don't depend on man. Man is weak. Man is foolish. Man is wicked. If we depend on man, if we look to man in our fear, our fear is justified. But God is strong and wise and holy. In him, mercy is a sure reality. Number three, as Christians standing on faith in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, we are not only wise, but we are obliged to persevere in our faith and in our prayer until God has mercy on our suffering. God put his son on a cross to take your place, to receive the punishment and the wrath for your sin so that that wrath and that punishment would never come upon you. We are obliged to persevere in our worldly suffering in light of what God has done through Christ's substitution for us on the cross. In our weakness, we too often abandon faith. We too often loosen our grip on God and on God's promises. Today, the cultural trends globally really are not favorable towards the church The church in the West particularly is in a season of unpopularity. But this isn't the first time that the people of God have been 
held in contempt. This song is about the people of God being held in contempt. And throughout history, God has always preserved his people. So don't be discouraged, church. Don't let your faith be shaken. Even in the New Testament, we read about the church being treated like scum. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 11 to 13. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Globally today, the church is being trampled on and martyred. Injustice is done to God's children. But yet we are obliged because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf to persevere until, not if, until the mercy of the Lord comes upon us, until we receive our final glorious mercy. That's encouraging. Number four, faith makes us aware of sin. Faith makes us aware of the fact that we are sinners. The need for mercy and the need for grace is never out of order, even for repentant sinners, we never progress so much as to get beyond the attitude of the tax collector. Looking to and crying out to God isn't only for those treated unjustly by those not fearing the Lord. We all have reasons to keep our eyes on God, calling on God each and every day. Pursuing Christ's likeness requires daily mercy. Mercy God bestows. So look for it. Pray for it until he does. That's encouraging. Number five, in our severest trials, we can appeal to God for mercy from the scorning and contempt of men to the grace and mercy of the eternal King. Just knowing that God knows helps. Just like Exodus chapter 2. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. He saw the people. And God knew. Knowing God knows lifts some of the burden. It relieves some of the pain. If God doesn't know, if God doesn't hear, Oh, we are the most to be pitied. How dreadful. But God does, and that's encouraging. Number six, recipients of scorn and contempt. If that's you, if you're a recipient of scorn and contempt, remember Jesus' firsthand experience of scorn and contempt. After Jesus is tortured and crucified, the religious leaders and the crowds, they just heap up scorn and contempt, adding insult to injury. 
as long as he hangs there on the cross. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, we read, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Number six, I mean, I'm sorry, number seven, lastly, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Don't become too secure apart from God. Be leery of becoming like those in the psalm who are at ease, who are unpleasing to God. In verse four, those who are at ease are proud. They're living for the flesh. They're feeling secure and self-confident. They're heaping scorn and contempt on the lowly. Is it hard to imagine anything more against a true Christian spirit of humility than that kind of pride and that kind of arrogance. So let's keep a very close eye on ourselves, keep a very close eye on our hearts. And one way to do that, as we see modeled in the psalm, is to keep our eyes pointed to God, to keep our prayers coming to God, Prayers that are filled with anticipation. Filled with anticipation for the mercy that we all need. Mercy God has. And mercy God will most certainly pour out on those for whom Christ died. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word that you have preserved it all these thousands of years so that right here today, we can open up your word. We can read it. We can proclaim it. We can find hope and strength in it. So Lord, thank you that your spirit who is among us today is able to take this word Plant it deep in our hearts and use it just like the other words that we read today to transform us into the likeness of Christ who didn't lose hope in the many hours that he was at need but who continued to look to the God who was enthroned in the heavens and continued to offer up his prayers until mercy came. We're thankful, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.